good morning. My name is Robert. I'm the lead pastor here. And uh, we are working our way through Hebrews 13. We're looking at one verse this morning. And if you're thinking it's going to be a short sermon, you're wrong, um, even though it's on one verse. Um, so we've, we're calling this faith in practice. So faith as in the faith, um, believing rightly about the gospel, about, about Jesus, and then practice, the implications of that belief is, is what's meant by that phrase. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is mostly about faith and just a little bit about practice. Most of it is about the theology of the gospel. Uh, and the, the, the readers, the original readers, were Jewish Christians who were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. They were tempted to go back to uh, the following of the law and the keeping of the sacrificial system. And so the book of Hebrews is calling them back to the gospel, to trust in the work that's already been done for them by Jesus. And I'll give you one example, uh, Hebrews 9 uh, verse 15, therefore he is the mediator, he being Jesus, of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Genuine Christianity is based on what Jesus has done for you, right? Not based on something you do. So by trusting in the gift of the grace that was given at the cross, we are forgiven and we're given an inheritance. That's something you don't, don't earn. That's something you receive. You're freely adopted as sons and daughters and therefore you get an inheritance. So that's, that's the faith part that we read about in Hebrews that Chris Gow did an overview of the whole book last week. So if you want to listen to that uh, and you weren't here last week, you can uh, look Listen to that on our, on our website. Um, but the, the, the question is, once you believe in that faith, then what? what? What do you do? And what you do is you continue to grow in your knowledge of the gospel, what Christ has done for you, and you grow in your application of that gospel. The gospel saves you and shapes you. That would be another way to think about it, right? So you see these two threads in a place like Hebrews 12, the, the chapter right before the one we'll look at today. It says, therefore, since we were surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there we see both faith and practice woven together. We see practice, we see uh, the writer saying, lay aside sin and run with endurance. Right? That, that's practice. But then you, you also see him hearkening back to the faith piece. Look to Jesus, right? look to his finished work. He is the founder and the perfecter of the faith, that the gospel both saves us and shapes us. So most of the practice that's spoken about in Hebrews is in chapter 13. And so we're, we're spending the whole summer in chapter 13. Uh, the, and it's just sort of a grab bag of different topics that are very practical and, and are very specific in terms of what does the Christian do? How does the Christian live in light of, of the gospel? So last week, 
you heard uh, the first three verses of that chapter preached. Again, you can listen to this on, on our website. Uh, but Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 read, reads like this. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained uh, angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So really practical things to do in light of the gospel, that, that these actions of brotherly love, of, of taking care of those that are mistreated, of, of caring for those uh, that are, are in prison and giving hospitality to strangers that you don't even know and that probably can't pay you back and you may never see again. These are gospelly things to do. They, they make sense if you understand the gospel uh, rightly. Now, the next verse is what we're going to look at today, another implication. And again, this is a totally different topic. So again, I, that's why I kind of call this a grab bag. It's just one topic after another. And so each of these uh, will be... Ba- the basis of of each sermon this summer. But this one is just a a one-verse topic here, Hebrews 13, 40. You just heard it read. I'll read it again. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So we're going to look at two things. Uh, We're going to look at what, what marriage even is, and then how do we honor it. So that's where I'm going. Uh, What is marriage and how does one honor it? So what is marriage? That's an incredibly big question in our culture today. I I feel like a a lot of decades, I wouldn't even have to do this part of the sermon. Just skip right over it. Everybody knows what marriage is. Keep moving. Not in our current culture. Uh, Most in our culture are are saying that marriage is a social construct. This is something that human beings came up with. And therefore, society can change the definition, tweak the definition, uh, as long as enough of society agrees. It's sort of like, let's take a vote. What, what is marriage? And then if we all agree or a majority of us agrees, then that's what marriage is. And this change of definition has been happening over the past 20, 25 years in our, in our country. Uh, some have made... Uh, arguments for what is sometimes called traditional marriage. Uh, a woman by the name of Mally, uh, Maggie Gallagher, she uh, has this little phrase where she says, the only reason society should be involved in uh, marriage at all is that the people that make the babies should raise the babies. Right? And she, so she makes this sort of sociological argument uh, that if, if the society is going to experience human thriving, it needs this institution of marriage to make sure that those that are having sex and having babies are taking care of those babies. And she makes some strong arguments. And there's lots of research that points to how children thrive in a home where there is a mom and a dad. It's not hard to make that argument. It's, it's throughout uh, lots of studies. Um, and, and, and then, you know, that argument's made, and it pretty much falls on deaf ears. Nobody's really interested in that argument. Um, for the most part, it is because our, our culture is pretty focused on the individual, the individual's fulfillment, the individual's happiness. And so that, that is such the focus that any kind of uh, it-would-be-good-for-society arguments just falls on deaf ears. 
Others have made uh, arguments from human history. They've said, well, throughout human history, marriage has been this. So who are we to, to change the definition? Again, falling on deaf ears. Most people don't really care about our history. They don't care about uh, his, history of, of human civilization. Um, and, and so what we find is really marriage is just being thrown in the, in the trash heap <laughs> as far as our culture is concerned. Uh, you, you can see this handy-dandy little uh, CDC uh, uh, little figure here that shows on the top is per capita, so per 1,000 people. So this is the apples for apples kind of a, a, a comparison. Uh, the number or the percentage of people that were married from 1860 to 2010. On the bottom is the divorce rate. Okay, so you, you start off there in 1860, you've got marriage, you've got divorce, and then you see a little bit of an increase. You see a huge increase when World War II ends. And the soldiers come back, and they all get married, and they start having babies, and that's called the baby boom, right? And that's when we get the boomers, right? And then the boomers grow up, and around the, the 70s, 80s, the boomers all start getting divorced. So that's where you see that little, little uh, 1980, you see that little, little uh, increase in the divorce rate. But then after that, you just see a trailing off of the percentage of people that are even getting married. And for a lot of millennials, marriage is just not something they're interested in. They're, they're living together. They're not, they're not at all concerned about marriage. They you know, think, well, maybe when I'm 35, I'll have some kind of marriage ceremony. But it's just not, it's just not that big a deal. Um, so if that's how culture is thinking about marriage, then how, how should Christians think about marriage? And does it really matter? And of course, I'm going to say, yes, it does matter. And, and the way that we know how to define marriage is from the Bible. We go to the Bible. We go to God's Word. And God has a lot to say about marriage. And if we're going to build a biblical understanding of marriage, we, we have to go to Genesis 1 and 2. Because this is the first marriage, Adam and Eve. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, one from Genesis 1 and one from Genesis 2, that give us, I think, some, some foundational truths about the definition of marriage. So Genesis 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the very next chapter, Genesis 2, verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. This is the, the first time in the Bible, which are the opening chapters, where the scriptures describe what's sometimes called the institution of marriage. We call it that because we believe that God has instituted it, right? This is, this is in the opening welcome of, of, a, of a marriage ceremony, right? Dear friends and family, we're gathered here today in the sight of God and these many witnesses to join this man and this woman in holy marriage, which is an honorable estate instituted by God. I don't know how many times I've done that. Many times. It's memorized. It's instituted by God. God, where do, we, where do we get that? We get that from Genesis 1 and 2. This is how we know 
that this was instituted by God. It's not just a social construct, not just something that human beings came up with. And so we see in these verses uh, some, some main points. This is a simple definition, right? One is it's exclusive. It's an exclusive relationship between two people, right? It, it, this this uh, talking of, of one flesh. You can't do one flesh with more than one person. You can't have oneness with more than one person. So it's exclusive. It's lifelong. You see in the verbiage there, leave your mother and father and hold fast to your spouse. That, that's, that's not a hookup on Saturday night. That is permanent. That is a lifelong commitment. And then it's between a man and a woman and a biological man and a woman. How do we know that? It's because they're fruitful and they multiply. Right? We know that they're a biological man and a biological woman because they are able to have babies. Right? So, it's, so it's exclusive, it's lifelong, and it's between a man and a woman. The New Testament carries that definition forward. This is not just an Old Testament thing. You think, well, that's just Israel, that's just Old Testament. That's not what Jesus says. That actually is what Jesus says. Matthew 19, he's being asked about divorce by the Pharisees. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So interesting what you see Jesus doing there. They're asking him about divorce. Weigh in on divorce, Jesus. Tell us what you think about divorce. And he's like, haven't you read? Which obviously they had. They were experts in the law. And what does he want to know if they've read? Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He mentions both of those scriptures. And then he adds to that, or clarifies that, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So evidently God was not just joining Adam and Eve together. God is joining every husband, every wife together. And it's, so it's an institution um, that's, that's from God. So this is what we're talking about. When we say, uh, like, let marriage be held in honor among all. This is what marriage is in terms of the biblical understanding. Now, how does one hold it in honor? That's, that's the next little phrase there. Uh, let's back up and think about what does it mean to honor something. And I'll take a definition that I stole from the book called The Blessing. That, that to honor something, you attach high value to it. So if you're going to honor a person, honor a thing, honor an institution, whatever it is you're honoring, you're going to honor it by attaching high value to it. That word that's translated honor there can mean precious, costly, can even be translated uh, jewels. So it's, it's something that you highly value, right? So it's saying to highly value marriage. Um, when, when you think about how we attach value to things. Oftentimes, the value we attach changes at different times. So think about um, my iPhone versus a bottle of water, right? What, which of these do I value the most? Do I, do I value the iPhone more or the water? Who says iPhone? Okay, okay. Who says bottle of water? Okay, really? I mean, bottle of water is like a dollar. But, but what if I was in the desert 
and my phone battery was totally dead, right? Oh, suddenly the value shifts, and now the bottle of water is more valuable. Or, or just five years from now, the iPhone that I have is totally worthless, right? And so, so the value is shifting and, and changing, but, but that is not the case with marriage. Throughout the millennia, Old Testament, New Testament, the, the people of God are to attach high value to the institution of marriage. They are to honor marriage. And, and this is to all Christians, right? This is not just to the married people that, that should honor marriage within their own marriage, which that's certainly included, but, but single people in the church, right? Widowed people in the church, divorced people in the church, everyone in the church is being commanded to honor marriage, to attach high value to marriage. This is what gospel-saved and gospel-shaped Christians do. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we attach high value to uh, marriage? Now, there's, a, I think, a, a myriad of ways that we can ha- attach high value, but, but this is what the text says. The text says, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So this is, this is what the, the writer here is saying. This is at least one of the ways or an important way that you honor marriage. Now, the marriage bed is a euphemism for the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. We do this kind of thing, too, where we use euphemisms, right? We say, oh, they are sleeping together, right? That's a euphemism for uh, se- sexual uh, encounter with someone. And so here it, it's saying the marriage bed. Let the marriage bed undefiled. Let, let marital sexuality be undefiled. Now, what does it mean by undefiled? It, that it should be pure, that it should be unstained. Now, there, there's a, one other place in Hebrews where this word that's translated undefiled uh, is used. Uh, Hebrews 7.26, it's speaking of Jesus, and it says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained. That's that same Greek word that's translated there. Uh, which is translated defiled in Hebrews 13:4, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. It's describing Jesus as being uh, neither guilty of sin nor stained by sin. And, and, and he's saying we want to keep the marriage bed unstained, right? Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How, how do we keep the marriage bed holy? How, how do we keep it unstained? Well, well first... We want to put our faith in the Jesus that can take stained people and make them unstained. And most of us in the room, at some level, have sinned sexually. And because of that, we are defiled and we are stained. And we can't do anything to take that, uh, that stain away. And so Jesus has to do that for us. This is part of what happens when we become a Christian. right? We're, we're not j- just... Uh, our guilt is taken care of, but also the defilement that comes from being a sinner. And so this is first and foremost what must happen for the marriage bed to be undefiled is that the two sinners that are getting married have to have, have placed their faith in Christ and, and for being forgiven and washed clean. And, and that, that then and only then can they even begin to entertain what it means to keep the marriage bed Undefiled, but the second way, the, the way that the gospel saved Christian would then be shaped uh, in in this regard, is that they would be sexually abstinent before marriage and faithful in marriage. Sexually abstinent 
abstinent before marriage and faithful, sexually faithful in marriage. Any sex outside of marriage uh, defiles the marriage bed. It defies the order that God put in place in Genesis 1 and 2. And because it defies his commands, it therefore defiles the marriage bed. I, I see this on a practical level as I do premarital counseling. That's, that's one of the things we're, we're usually dealing with as we're talking together about the past and what's happened and how that's brought guilt and shame and mistrust into the marriage bed from day one. And having to go to the gospel and be forgiven of that and be cleansed of that and be transformed of that to begin on the right foot. That, that is so typical uh, for most pre-married couples. Now, you may be hearing this and thinking, oh, this is over the top. Pastor Rob, you're over the top, man. This is 2018. I don't know what you're thinking. But the writer of Hebrews doesn't seem to think this is over the top. I mean, look at the last phrase there. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Right? He, he doesn't seem to be saying, let's relax on this. For him to add that phrase is, is to, to, to make sure that the reader knows this is serious. This is important. This is something that we need to, to take heed of. Right? And in case you're wondering, well, must just mean don't commit adultery against your spouse. It can't mean sex, just pre premarital sex. Well, he uses two different words there. The sexually immoral, that word uh, pornos is a word that talks about any sex outside of marriage. And some of the older translations use the word fornicator. Right? And then he uses more the garden variety word for an, an adulteress. Right? So he's, he, he's being very particular in making sure the reader knows he's not just talking about adultery, he's talking about all sex outside of marriage and that, that those are sin and that those sins are judged just like every other sin. Now what he's not doing is, is taking sexual sin and putting it in a different category and saying, well, these are judged but these other ones are not, which is oftentimes what Christians do. But that's not what he's doing. He's making sure that they know that these are sin, and therefore they are worthy of judgment. Now, again, you may say, yeah, but things are so different now, right? I mean, maybe in the first century that, that would have been appropriate and made sense, but come on, this is 2018. And I would argue, actually, that especially in the Roman Empire, that things were actually worse in regard to the sexualization of the culture. For, for instance, um, prostitution in the ancient world was absolutely accepted by almost 100% of the ancient world, all social classes. Right? You, you had like a three-tier system in the Roman Empire. Right? You had streetwalkers who literally on the soles of their shoes had a message written, follow me. And as they walked through the dirt of the streets, the men could see that they were prostitutes and they would follow them and they would service them out on the street for as little as a loaf of bread. Then uh, another tier was the brothels. And in the brothels, you might have repeat customers, you might have tipping. Uh, it was a little more of a higher class kind of prostitution, but it was, it was still uh, pretty, pretty horrible. And those two categories of sort of the street walkers and the, and the brothels were most all slaves. 
They had been taken in military conquest, and they had been forced into prostitution. And that was the norm. They, they weren't having, uh, they, they didn't have ministries to, to, to help people get out of sex slavery. They, they weren't enraged over that injustice. That was just part of life, pretty much 100% accepted. And then the third tier was more like an escort. And these, these women were witty, they were uh, educated, they were a social companion, and yes, it also included sex. And some of them did that by their own choice. But still, this was just a regular part of the culture that the, that the hearers of the, right, of the letter of Hebrews were living in. Not to mention the pedophilia that was accepted, uh, wide-scale uh, mistresses that people had. I, I mean, the Roman Empire was an absolute mess. And so to say that it's different then. Well, it was different then. It was even worse. Yet the New Testament insists insists that the marriage bed be kept undefiled. Doesn't seem swayed by the culture at all. Doesn't seem to be making any kind of compromises. Just remains faithful to what is in the Old Testament, what is in the New Testament, no matter what. So what does that mean in terms of practice in honoring marriage in 2018? I have eight thoughts about that. Okay? This is a hard sermon to write. All right? I could have had like 35 thoughts, but uh, here are eight thoughts. One is we've got to deal with our guilt and shame. Right? Again, most of us, we've been more shaped sexually by our culture than we've been shaped by the gospel. M many of you grew up without the gospel. And, and so you're just swimming in a sexualized culture. Even those of you that grew up with the gospel or grew up with some sort of churchianity, still you were inundated with a culture of, uh, of sex, right? And so most of us, well, we, we've had sex before marriage or at least we've experienced very sexual things with people that were not uh, our spouses. Most have looked at porn or at least consumed hours and hours of sexual content in terms of looking at commercials and TV shows and print media. Most have fantasized, masturbated, some to the point of becoming addicted. Many have been raped, molested, uh, or at least touched and talked to in a way that was inappropriate and was damaging. These things have shaped us. But there is a saving agent and a, a shaping agent that is more powerful than the culture, and that's the gospel. No matter what you've done or what's been done to you, there's hope in the gospel. I want you to hear that. This is such an important message for us to hear and to proclaim to the world. Because we are, we have been shaped, we've been damaged in many respects by the sexualization of our culture. So again, hear Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we were... Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We, we look to Jesus to be saved from our guilt and from our shame. It may be some of you this morning, you're, you're not a Christian, but perhaps the, the, the sexual brokenness you've experienced is the means that God's using to bring you to a Savior in Christ. 
That's part of my own story. Of, of, of hearing the holy standard of God, much like you heard this morning, of God's standard for sexuality and realizing, I don't measure up. God, I'm a sinner. But then also being pointed to a Savior and realizing I could be washed clean, realizing I could, my guilt could be taken away from me. And that was in part what God used to help me come to faith in Christ. If that's you this morning, I, I encourage you to come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Be forgiven. Be made new. Be made clean. Be given a new life. He, that, that's, that's why he died on the cross. As he's dying on the cross, he's dying as one who is sexually immoral, as an adulterer. He's dying the death that those were worthy of. And he's doing that so that those of us sexually immoral and adulterers can be washed clean, can be forgiven, can be given hope and new life. Uh, we, we also have to deal with the cultural pressure. Well, we, we've got to be honest, right? There's a lot of pressure to not continue to maintain the biblical definition of marriage. And so the gospel gives us courage to maintain that. There's some things in the gospel that our current culture applauds, right? Like last week's text. So Chris, you know, he got to preach the fun verse, right? It, and, and, it, and it's about taking care of those who can't care for themselves. It's about caring for those in prison. It, it's about hospitality, right? It's about caring for the mistreated. Our, our, our culture would give us a standing ovation for that, verses 1 through 3, but not verse 4, right? Verse 4 is hate speech and bigotry, right? And so... We have to have the courage to graciously, winsomely, but firmly continue to hold fast to biblical understanding of marriage. Now, what I'm not saying is that we need to go spend a ton of time and energy and money trying to get legislation to be changed so that the, the laws of the land will maintain marriage. Um, I'm not against that. I certainly respect those that would put a lot of time and energy in that. Uh, but I'm not so sure that's the best way to spend our time and energy. Now, am I going to vote accordingly? Absolutely. As a citizen, I have the right to vote for what I think is going to contribute to human thriving. I I'm, I'm wouldn't vote for uh, policies regarding marriage because I want to try to make everyone act like a Christian. But I, I would vote for policies that I think would contribute to human thriving, and I, and I think uh, a biblical understanding of marriage contributes to human thriving, right? So I'm going to vote for that. But, but I'm also, I'm not going to think that somehow we can legislate marriage in such a way that everyone can get on board, right, in our country. What I'm more concerned about is marriage in the church. That's what I'm going to put my time and my energy into, starting with my own marriage, I've been married to my wife 20, almost 26 years, August 1st. And absolutely love each other, absolutely committed and devoted to one another. And so that's, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in our house, honoring marriage. And then we're going to do everything in our power to encourage and to instruct and to help and to support the marriages in our church. And in a lot of ways, it, 
it's, it's a countercultural thing to do, to, to get married, to stay married, no matter what. And it's a way to proclaim the gospel. We'll talk about that here uh, in a minute. So, we're, we're, we're dealing with guilt and shame. We're dealing with ongoing cultural pressure. Uh, we need to deal with lust. Right? Lust is any kind of sexual desire or any desire, really, that, that is disordered. Right? It's, it's a good desire that's gone bad. Uh, we hear Jesus speaking on this subject in Matthew 5, verse 27. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has, always, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. New Testament sexual purity begins at the heart. Right? Uh, it starts with one's internal desires and their thoughts. This is where all sin starts. Right? It starts with a simple desire that we then begin to entertain with our thoughts, and then we might even talk about it with our words, and then eventually we act upon it. Every sin has that pathway. Uh, you read about that pathway in places like James 1, where it says, But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Now, there's nothing wrong with desire, right? God gives us desire, and that desire inside of, of marriage is a, is a healthy thing, right? A desire for your spouse. You then begin to entertain that desire with some thoughts. You might even verbalize that desire to your spouse, and then you act on that desire. That's good. That's a blessing in the marriage. But, but when that desire is corrupted, when it's disordered, it becomes lust, and it's the same pathway, right? We desire, we think, we might talk, then we act. And so where this has to be dealt with is at the level of the heart. Right? It has to be dealt with in, in, the, in the, the area of lust. And so Jesus' command to us is to repent and obey at the level of the heart. Right? To be forgiven and to be cleansed and be transformed at the heart. This is, this is where... Uh, we, we actually see some kind of genuine change in, in the sexuality and the way it's lived out in our lives, in our church, and in our society. I mean, we hear a lot about the sexual abuse that's happened throughout our society for years and years and years, and, and, and it's come to, to the surface uh, with the Me Too movement, which has been, I, I think, helpful and, and uh, good. Uh, but the genuine solution to that really is going to be the change of the heart. And so it's, it's interesting. We've seen this sort of sleeping giant that's been awakened, this backlash of women that have been mistreated and, and have been abused sexually. And they, they're calling men out. For the most part, it's, it's, it's women calling men out. There's some abuse of, of men. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, it's the abuse of, of women. And they're calling out everything from cat calls uh, to rape, and it's an airing out. Again, as I said, it, it's, it's been needed in our culture, and it's, it's good. It's beneficial, and it's hopefully contributing to a culture and a society that's going to be a safe place for women to, to be human beings, to not be objectified, to be treated with the respect that they deserve. But again, the, the raising of awareness about consent uh, or harassment it's only going to go so far, right? It's, it's going to be a Band-Aid unless the heart is changed, unless lust is dealt with at the very core 
of a human being. Partly why we have this rampant sexual abuse, I would say, is because of the unbundling of marriage, sex, and family, which is God's design we see in Genesis 1 and 2. When the pill came along, suddenly marriage, sex, and family could be unbundled, right? You didn't need to get married to have sex. You didn't have to have kids if you did have sex, right? Because you could stop reproduction. And so that allowed us to treat sex as something very self-centered. And it changed everything in our culture. And, and so now we're reaping the consequences of that. Now, I'm not saying birth control is all bad and you can't use it, whatever. That's not... But, but think about the unbundling. You think about your cable package, right? It's, it's, it's bundled, right? You, you have your internet and your TV and your phone, and, you, and it's all together. And, and, and this, is, this was marriage and sex and family. It was all together. And then at, at a point in our history, it was, it was unbundled. And so now this is what we get. This is what we get. Um, and so... What brings back a healthy, thriving sexuality is the rebundling of that, of marriage, of sexuality, and family. And that's only going to occur when we are being saved by the gospel and shaped by the gospel. Right? Just as sinful human beings, we, we are not going to be able to rebundle that, right? to honor the marriage bed. We're going to have to be saved by Jesus to do that. We're going to have to be given grace and forgiveness. And we're also going to have to be transformed. We have to be shaped by that gospel. But if we are saved and we're shaped by the gospel, we can, we can rebundle that, right? We can rebundle marriage and sex and family, and we can see this human thriving in the marriage, in the family. And it's something that, again, it proclaims the gospel. It's a testimony to the world of the goodness of God. Now, that said, there are some in the church that have not followed suit, right? There are high-profile Christian leaders right now that are being outed for adultery, for all kinds of, of, of things. And it's almost like a weekly occurrence. You see it in your newsfeed. Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's another one of pastors and leaders and people that, uh, that, that seem to have known the gospel, preached the gospel, and, and yet... They're not following through in the area of sexuality and being shaped by that gospel. Um, some of this most recently has happened in the Southern Baptist Convention. And this is the denomination that we're affiliated with. And, and so uh, there's been a couple of high-profile people that have been outed uh, in this area. One is Frank Page, who uh, Frank Page was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention like a year ago. And he, he was busted for being an adulterer, right? He's like the president. And then an, another guy with the name of Paige, except this time it's not the last name, it's the first name, Paige Patterson, was president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, which is where I went to seminary, who was just fired be, because he wasn't handling appropriately. Uh, a rape victim had come to him and, and asked for help and had made improper comments uh, in public about uh, a young woman's body. And so the bad thing is that those things have happened. The good thing is that those things are being aired out and those people are being fired. Right? It's being handled. 
And so again, on one hand, we, we're not surprised that these things happen because these are sinners and sinners sin and sinners do things that are against the gospel and they're being handled, right? And what we don't want to say is, well, the, the gospel doesn't transform people, right? Just because people who profess they believe in the gospel aren't being changed doesn't mean the gospel is not true. The gospel is true. And for every one that's outed, there's a, a thousand more of faithful people that are following Christ and they're keeping the, the, the marriage bed undefiled. They're honoring the marriage. And that's done by the grace of the gospel. Number four, we need to fill the marriage bed with delight. I don't think the writer of Hebrews is just thinking, just keep it undefiled. Right? That's all you have to do. Keep it undefiled. I think he's, he's, he's keeping it undefiled to protect what it's supposed to be. And what it's supposed to be is filled with delight. Where do I get that? I get that from the Bible. Song of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 1. This is describing the, the end of honeymoon night uh, between Solomon and his bride. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then there's this poetic chorus, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Right? Some scholars would say that's, that's not the poetic chorus, that's actually God himself in the honeymoon chamber saying, drink deeply, be drunk on love. Right? And there's no babies being born there, there's no procreation happening as far as we know. Right? That's part of it, but that's not the only thing that sex is meant for. God designed sex for pleasure. For delight. We also see that in Proverbs 5, 18, 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, being intoxicated always in her love. Fill the marriage bed with delight. Your sex life is part of a healthy marriage. It's a means of proclaiming the gospel, right? The delight that the spouses have for one another is, is proclaiming this relationship between Christ and the church. It's also an act of defiance, right? Year after year after year after year of covenant marriage, committed marriage, having delightful sex inside that committed marriage. That is letting the culture know, let, letting the world system know the gospel is this good, the gospel is this transformative, that this is the kind of of marriage that can happen between a husband and a wife. So married people, part of your application of this sermon, go home and have delightful sex. All right? I'm serious. I mean, it's right. It's in the Bible, right? Okay, anyway. Number five, fight for the health of marriages in the church. Fight for the, life, for the health of marriages in the church. Both your own, if you're married, and those around you. I mean, husbands and wives are going to most likely stay faithful to one another if they have a healthy marriage. There's a, a book called His Needs, Her Needs, and the tagline is how to affair-proof your marriage. And the way you affair-proof your marriage is you make sure her needs are met and his needs are met. And so when there's a healthy, thriving marriage, it's going to contribute to remaining faithful to one another. 
Again, you're going to spend time and energy, even money, on what you honor, what you attach high value to. And so making sure that you maintain a healthy marriage is going to contribute to keeping the marriage bed undefiled and honoring the marriage. We have a yearly marriage retreat that we've participated in the last couple of years. And people have spent money and they've you know, paid babysitters and they've done all kinds of things to make the schedule happen so that they could come to this yearly marriage retreat. And it's a sacrifice, but man, it's worth it. It's been one way, not the only way, but one way that married couples here have made a commitment uh, to take care of their marriages. Um, it's also been an opportunity for some single folk to help married people take care of their marriages. So some single people have taken care of the babies at home so that the married people could go and be on uh, this retreat, which is a beautiful thing, a beautiful working out of the church as we honored marriage uh, on that uh, weekend. Married people, you also want to fight for the marriages around you, not just your marriage, but the marriages around you, those that, that are your friends in the church, those that you know in the church that are married. You know how hard it is to do marriage in this fallen world. You know how the pressure can get to you and how difficult it is to maybe have a newborn in the home. And so as you see your friends that are married going through those same things, maybe you're a few years ahead on, on the journey, you can reach out to them and encourage them and support them. Right? And so fighting for the marriages of, of, of others. And as, as, as I just mentioned, single people, you're being exhorted to honor marriage as well. But as you see opportunities to help lift the load, lift the weight of, of those that are, that are married, of families that are having difficulty, this is a way to do church life that is very glorifying uh, to Christ and a huge blessing to those people. And single people need to be encouraged in the life of celibacy. Right? That's not easy either. That ongoing single life. Right? For some, that's going to be temporary. One day they'll be married. For some, it's a calling on their life. That's lifelong. And so those, those who are married, you're encouraging those that are single as they live uh, a pure, uh, celibate life outside of marriage. Number six, want to say no to divorce. Right? We, we hear this in that Matthew 19 verse that I, I read you, Jesus saying, What God has joined together, let man not separate. We're going to fight for marriage, no matter what, no matter how hard it's been, no matter how miserable you are, we're going to fight. So if you come to me, you come to the elders, and you're like, we're just not getting along, we're going to get a divorce. We're going to say, no, don't get a divorce. Keep going. Keep going. Keep fighting. Let's get some counseling. Let's encourage you. Let's have a talk. Let's pray. Let's get some people involved. We're going to say, no, don't get a divorce. Right? This is part of how we honor the marriage bed. This is part of how we honor, uh, hold, hold marriage uh, honored uh, by all. And even if you're miserable in your marriage for the rest of your life, we're going to tell you, stay married. Now, that's not what our culture says. Right? Our culture says it's all about your happiness. It's all about your fulfillment. And if you're not happy and fulfilled, then you should get out. That's not what we're going to say here. Not what we're going to say here. Now, what I find is that when people trust in the gospel and they maintain and they persevere, that he gives them grace to transform them, to transform their marriage. And when they get on the other side of whatever it is they're wrestling with, they have a deeper marriage than they had before. 
Tim Keller says every marriage goes through the same journey. They fall in love, they fall out of love, they fall back in love. I think that's absolutely true. And so when people are in the fell out of love stage, they oftentimes say, I'm out of here. And what, they, what they're doing, they're missing the fall back in love. And it's a much deeper, much more life-giving marriage than they ever dreamed possible. Right? Now, there are circumstances where divorce is appropriate. Right? Infidelity is one of the things that's mentioned in the scriptures as, as, a, as a get out free card. Like it, it, when a spouse commits infidelity, Jesus says that they can be divorced, partly because he, he understands the, the pain of that. Now, it, you don't have to. We've seen some people that have gone through infidelity and they've reconciled and they've, they've got healthy marriages. Also, in cases of abuse, these, these are times when um, divorce. Is appropriate, but divorce is kind of like an amputation. Right? You have a little cut on your leg, and you go in to see the doctor, and the doctor says, "Let's amputate." You would not go back to that doctor, right? And so you come to me, you come to one of the elders, and, and you say, "Hey, we got this cut on our on our marriage. We're not going to say, yeah, amputate, cut it off." We say, "No, let's work on healing. Let's work on reconciliation. Let, let's fight for this." Let's ask the Lord to do something miraculous. Right? And he has joined you together. He's vested in marriage. Right? This is what Jesus is saying. That when you stand before him, you make that covenant. It's not just you and your spouse. God is there. He showed up in that ceremony. He is joining you together. And so when we go to him, he's vested in seeing marriages last and thrive because they proclaim the gospel, and that make, gets me to my seventh point. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. Right? God's work in the gospel is, is what saves us, and it's, what's, it, it, it's what shapes us. Um, marriage is to be God-centered, just like everything else in the universe. Again, this is so counter to our culture's idea of marriage and sex and romance. But it is to be God-centered, and when we are God-centered in our marriage, then we get the secondary results of, of thriving and happiness. And so he, it's not that he doesn't want us to have that, but he doesn't want that to be the focus. The focus is him. It's his institution. He joins you together. He is the one that shapes and sustains us in the midst of marriage. So we must keep our eyes on Christ. He is both the source of our marriage. He is the, the shape, uh, the, 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 uh, the shaper of our marriage. And again, I, I've said this a few times throughout this sermon, that it, it preaches the gospel as husband and wife, loving each other well. We're reminded of Christ and the church. And think about how Christ loved the church. We, we think about that every time we come to this table. On the night in which Jesus is being betrayed, <laughs> Things are not going well in the marriage, right? There's a lot of incompatibility. And what does Jesus do? Right? Does he say, I'm done. I'm leaving this marriage. No, that's not what he does. He takes bread. He breaks it. He gives it to them. And he says, this is my body given for you, bride. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and 
for many. Part of this new covenant is that now the Holy Spirit's going to come and live inside the Christian and, and give transformative power to the Christian such that they can be shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not only shaped, forgiven. Right? Forgiven. And so the eighth point is repent. It's repent. And, and when we repent, we start with being forgiven. Right? Repentance is not like a performance thing where you're trying, I'm going to do the right thing so you'll love me, Jesus. No, I'm going to do the right thing because you have loved me. And as we see Jesus pour his spousal love out for us unconditionally, right? If anybody deserved a divorce, it was us. And so instead of that, he moves toward us in unconditional love and forgiveness and reconciliation. And when we see that, our response should be to confess our sins, be washed clean, but then turn away from those sins. And so this morning, my, my exhortation to you is bring those sins to Jesus. Right? And, and, and for some, it, it, it's lust, it's sexual sin, it's stuff in the past, it's experiencing a divorce. I mean, there's all kinds of, of different ways that, that this, this, the sexuality of our world and our own lives is a mess. And bring that to Christ. And let him forgive you of the guilt and wash you from the uncleanness of that. But don't just stay there, right? Then repent, step away, turn away from that sin. And in the transformative grace of the gospel, continue to live that out, whether you're married or you're single. This is the hope that's in the gospel. And so if you're here this morning and you're hearing that hope and you're thinking, I, I, I don't have Christ, well, then trust in Christ this morning. Receive what he's done for you on the cross by faith and follow him. Become a Christian. And this will transform you not just in the area of sexuality, but in every other area of your life. So as, as we take this bread and this cup, let's be reminded of the spousal love of Jesus for his wayward bride. Forgiving us, cleansing us, transforming us to be conformed into his image. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being such a loving father, good, a father that gives good gifts. One of those good gifts is, is our sexuality, our, the, the gift of marriage, the gift of family. Lord, these, these things come from your hand. These things are, are not just accidents of evolution, but things that you've instituted things you've given as, as gifts of your grace. So God, we give you thanks for these things and we, we don't want to look at them as something that's bad or something that's shameful, but something that's good. And we also come to you confessing, Lord, that we've taken these gifts and we've, we've tainted them, we've stained them, we've defiled them. And we are in desperate need of your forgiveness, Lord, your cleansing, so, Lord, as each of us comes to you with, with all the different kinds of circumstances that we find ourselves in, whether it's, it's just secret thoughts that we're harboring in our hearts or things that we've done in the past, things that we've done this week, Lord, that we, 
would bring these to you and be forgiven and cleansed and then granted repentance. Lord, so many of us, we feel like we have no power over sexual sin, but yet we know from your word, Lord, we have power because of the gospel. So Lord, transform us, change us as individuals and then transform marriages in the room and then transform us as a church as we give a, a witness to you, a witness to the gospel through the way that we do marriage and family in this church. Lord, we pray your blessing over the bread and the cup in our time of communing with you. Thank you that you didn't give up on your wayward bride, that you continue to move toward us in love and unconditional uh, forgiveness. And we worship you this morning. We praise you. We relate with you with delight, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.